When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mutation, it is the key to our evolution. It has enabled us to evolve from a single-celled organism into the dominant species on the planet. This process is slow, normally taking thousands and thousands of years. But every few hundred millennia, evolution leaps forward. Welcome to Fury's Finest, a podcast devoted to discussion of Marvel Crisis Protocol. My name is Jesse Aiken, and I am joined by my co-host and Marvel expert, Chris Bruffett. How have you been this week, Chris? How does it feel to start the X season? It feels real good. It does. No, it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun, man. In that last little mini sode we we delivered to you guys, we kind right. of explained everything that's going on with the X season, and we are just beyond excited for this. We are. It's a nice way for us to break format and also hyper focused on this giant part of Marvel. And then we're doing all these sideshows, which we've never done in Furious Finest before. So kind of some of the stuff we were hinting at in our one-year episode that we want to do in this next year. We really want to push the show, make it more enjoyable, you know, bring the best content we can to you guys. And, you know, when we can bring side episodes, we're going to try our very best to do it. We've got some stuff planned and hopefully we've got some more stuff to announce here in the near future. That's right, Chris. And, you know, speaking of stuff coming out... Something that went totally over my head, even before Miles came out, that I wanted to mention on the show, but we were so hyper-focused on our content, I forgot to mention, and I'm very excited to talk about, that I was on the Gamers Guild YouTube channel. Nate had me back on, and I was talking the banned and restricted list alongside some great podcasters in the community, Dizzard from The Danger Room, Will from House Party Protocol, and of course, Nate from the Gamers Guild, and then me representing Fury's Finest. And we just got to talk about the banned and restricted list, what we liked, what we didn't like, cards that we thought would get some play now that the banned and restricted list was out there. And then we also talked about my favorite part, which was some named character cards that we thought might see some play. And I had to talk about We Are Groot. I'm glad you did. You just have to talk about it. When all the healing cards have been restricted in some way, when there's a named character healing card that can get around that, I think it's worth mentioning. And Groot's a cool character. But yeah, thank you again, Nate, to having me on. I'll make sure to put it in these show notes for you guys to click on. But if you haven't found it, go to Nate's channel, The Gamers Guild. Of course, follow him if you're not. Chris and I follow him religiously and love his show. He's awesome. Just check out the episode. It's a couple episodes back because he's released some episodes since then. But yeah, it just has, of course, the four of us discussing and having a really nice Zoom call about this content. It was really fun. That aside, Chris, we've got some interesting spoilers and sculpts to talk about that we haven't talked about yet. You and I have been kind of waiting for them to build up. We didn't talk about them on Gwen when we had a chance to talk about them because we wanted to see the full pictures. But now we have the full pictures the Inhumans have been spoiled. They're coming to MCP. That's Black Bolt, Medusa, Crystal, and Lockjaw so far. What do you think about this? Super fun. A, very interesting characters that they picked. Black Bolt and Medusa, of course, are a Iconic. given. Yeah. Crystal was clearly, she's, a very influ- she's very influential in the world of the Inhumans. She is. An interesting choice. I really thought it would be Kamala Khan. 
They're saving her. For oh, yeah. Special. And she's going to be great. And I do not mind Crystal being here because that sculpt is insane. <laughs> it really is insane. It's beautiful. Same with the Medusa and, and Black Bolt. Medusa looks great. Black Bolt is easily my favorite in human. I think he's very, very cool character. When we talked about him on the show recently, Chris, not too long ago when we did our Black Order series, mm-hmm. because the Inhumans played a major role in that Infinity Black Order series. And really cool for me as someone who had not read any Inhumans content to get them pretty visible and frequent on the page in a series that I actively read. And, you know, it was a good introduction for me to them, because I've only seen them passing in certain crossover events. That's about it. Black Bolt is a force to be reckoned with, and his miniature looks great. I mean, the base is breaking up as he's sending his, you know, waves out of his voice. Well, he's an insanely powerful character in the world of Marvel, and a very interesting character in that he almost never talks, unless he's, of course, in a very special place called the Quiet Room. So Black Bolt is very cool, has one of the coolest character designs, I think, in Marvel, as far as costume and everything goes. I think he looks very cool. So this might be a reach, Chris, but yeah, Black Bolt doesn't talk much for obvious reasons, because the power that can just spill out. It's kind of interesting we're doing a similar character today, Scott Summers Cyclops, who has a very similar situation. He essentially can't use a part of his body in a normal way if he does he will kill the ones he loves. I don't know. It's just worth mentioning up top. It's just a thought I had. Don't open your eyes, Scott. You know, Please keep them closed, Scott. And Black Bolt, keep your mouth closed unless you're killing some bad guys. But we've saved the best for last, Chris. And I, I know you want to talk about it and I want to talk about it, but just go for it. Okay. So aside from the fact that it's a dog and we all love dogs, I am terrified <laughs> that Lockjaw is going to break the game. <laughs> He's going to be the new two threat that gives Toad a run for his money, huh? There is a high chance that he's going to be a two threat that is going to teleport allied team members across the board. And that's terrifying. That's terrifying. It's some really high level play, potentially. It also seems really fun. Yeah, a, a dog support character. I'm, I'm here for it, Chris. I am here for it so much. And his oh, skull looks fun. amazing. He's running. Slobber is flying off his face. He is a giant bulldog. It's proper. He looks great. He's on a medium sized base. I'm excited. I'm really excited. And, you know, this is just the beginning, potentially. If anything, this is, I think, Atomic Mass's way of being like the X Men are out. We are now announcing the next big event, which is going to be in humans. Maybe more in humans are coming down the line. We don't know, and we're not going to speculate. The possibilities, right, are pretty endless. I have some names in my head. That's right. That I'd love to talk about, but we'll see when we get there. Yeah, when we get there, we'll, we will dive into them all day. And, you know, maybe we'll have an inhuman season at some point in the future, Chris, if it's robust enough, because they are up and coming in Marvel, and I need to learn about them. And they all are connected, similar to the X Men. And, you know, you and I did mention that it was Marvel's attempt to try to remake the X-Men, though maybe not as effective. I still think it's interesting to pursue and learn about this kind of experiment going forward, you know? And of course, there's things like Kamala Khan, like you mentioned, huge success, huge hit, the lead character of the new Marvel video game, you know? It's worth mentioning. 
Oh, she's great. She's absolutely wonderful. We got to close out news today with some news I am super excited about. We finally have a release date on WandaVision, which Chris and I have been talking about for so long. We're talking about potentially this Lynchian vibe of this sort of The Visions type show. And one can only hope. And if you haven't listened to our Vision episode, please go listen to it because Chris gives a great rundown of a path they might take with the WandaVision show. It's been confirmed that the show is going to come out on January 15th, a Friday, just like The Mandalorian. And the format's going to be just like The Mandalorian. Every Friday, for six Fridays, WandaVision will come out. I'm excited. This should be really cool. I'm nervous. I'm excited. And, uh, you know, it's going to be cool to keep my uh, my Friday night TV date, I guess. Yeah, that's my favorite part about The Mandalorian, as you know, Chris. And I love just thinking about it during the week, re-watching the episode again. I just love not binging it. I love actually enjoying it, letting it percolate. Think about it. And I think WandaVision is going to be a show that's actually going to really benefit from not watching it all in one go. I really think it's going to benefit from watching these episodes individually because they've kind of come out and said now, you know, the show is not only inspired by some of these crazy comic storylines like the visions and stuff. And of course the MCU, but it's also inspired by American television and Americana and sort of this like progression through the years of sitcoms. And they're really going to lean into that. They're going to have like a fifties and sixties and seventies and eighties period and they're really going to lean into the tropes and the artistic styles of sitcoms of those eras. And I think they're going to work within those confines, too. And then every once in a while, it's going to go full Marvel, you know, full MCU. And it's going to come back, you know. And I'm really interested in that idea. Uh, Elizabeth Olsen said it was pretty surreal on the 80s set. It was like being a kid again, she said, on, you know, some iconic shows she might have been on in the 80s, as we know. So I think that's pretty interesting. I think it's a really fun thing going forward. And of course, Paul Bettany gets to not be in the makeup all the time. And that's good for him. (laughs) It's going to be very exciting. I'm just really curious as to where they're going to take it. It's this whole new phase of Marvel is just starting. So this show being so early on, there's potential for it to be rather formative as far as direction of the MCU goes. So I'm just really not sure what to expect. Yeah, and I think that's what's most exciting about it, Chris. I think it's going to be potentially the most dynamic and unique thing that's existed in the MCU. And I think that's a good thing going forward because they're kind of free. First of all, they're a show. Second of all, it's just a show about Wanda and Vision. And then they can kind of go into this crazy, like quasi-psychological mental realm, which they're doing with the show, as we know. And I'm really interested to see what they do, because we've never seen Scarlet Witch's powers fully realized in the MCU quite like the show could potentially do. And that's pretty exciting. Not to mention the fact that we just don't know how powerful Wanda is going to be in the MCU. Right. She's, of course, in her long history in Marvel Comics, she's run the gamut from you know, fairly powerful individual against other humans to a reality shaper. So absolutely. We're just not sure where she's going to go. We're not sure, but that's the theme we think the show's going to lean into is her shaping reality around herself and almost recreating vision in a way, because at this point in the timeline, vision of course is dead because the mind stone was pulled out of his head from Thanos and he can't be brought back to life or that's what we've been led to believe. So I'm really interested to see the route they go and this sort of picturesque Americana Wanda creating this world around them really intrigued by that, but we'll just time will tell and Chris, it'll be something fun for us to do on the show, do some reviews of it, which, you know, we've discussed wanting to do and maybe some just quick ideas and discussions about it. It'd be a nice change of pace. Well, of course today 
We're not here for the Inhumans. We're not here for Wanda or Vision. We're here for one reason. We knew this day would come. We knew this episode would come. You and I both were excited and dreading it. We're going to be discussing the leader of the X-Men Team Blue, or in MCP terms, the uncanny X-Men Team Blue, Scott Summers, Cyclops. But first, we have to take care of a little business. Fury's Finest is sponsored by Discount Games, Inc. Go to DiscountGamesInc.com for all your Marvel Crisis Protocol and miniature gaming needs. Our patrons support Fury's Finest at Patreon.com slash Fury's Finest. If you enjoy this show and it brings value to your life, consider supporting us with a monthly contribution. We thank all of our patrons for the support, and our patrons are truly who are making all this X-Season content happen. The show is always going to be free. But the patrons are actually giving us the ability to put more time into the show and do these side episodes. So if you want to make more of that happen, become a patron and thank the patrons. This week, we want to send a very special, big thank you to Ben D. Ben, thank you so much for becoming a patron of the show. You are why we do this. Thank you, Ben. And of course, thank you to our Avenger producer, Matthew R. You get your name announced every week because you are the producer of this show. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Matt. Chris, let's get into lore. So starting lore, Chris, we have a very iconic character, not only in Marvel, but of course in X-Men. We are starting our X season with this character because he is the leader of the X-Men blue team, not only in lore, but in MCP. That's right, Jesse. But before we really get started... I've had to do this a couple times. I want to go ahead and throw out before we start this lore section, there are a couple of adult theme things here. We will be dealing with a a character that self-harms, and we will be dealing with some uh, romantic and sexual relationships. So keep that in mind if maybe kids are in the car or anything like that. So just wanted to give you guys a heads up. We've had a couple episodes where that's come up in the past, and it's something that is going to be organic and... Marvel Comics, not always the case by any means, but when it comes up, we're always going to mention it to you. So thank you, Chris. So Chris, who is Cyclops? Scott Summers is the first of the X-Men recruited by Professor X. Xavier handpicks Scott to lead the X-Men and to carry on the legacy of his mutant human harmony ideals. Xavier views Scott as one of his most prized pupils. Their relationship exhibits some father-son qualities, which makes complete sense when we get into Scott's early life. From time to time, Scott's extreme loyalty to Xavier has cost him dearly in his relationships with others. But over the course of the character's publication history, he eventually emerges from Xavier's shadow as the undisputed X-Men leader. That's right. I think it could be more better said than there, Chris. And I think this is kind of all the pros and cons of Scott are kind of wrapped up in everything you just said. It's true. And unfortunately, guys, this character has been around since 1963. So clearly I could not include everything here. No. So some of the things that make Scott so divisive have happened a little bit more recently than what we get to cover here. But, you know, X-Men fans know you're either you're either Team Cyclops or you're Team Wolverine. That's so true. And uh, hopefully we'll get into that a little bit today. But before we do, I think it would be a good idea for us to talk about his superpowers first. This will help frame his his history for us. 
Cyclops emits beams of energy from his eyes, described as optic blasts. They have the appearance of red light and deliver massive concussive force. His cells constantly absorb solar energy, and he can use that energy to create an opening in an alternative universe in front of his eyes. The beams fire from these openings. These optic blasts cause no recoil, no heat, and are tremendously powerful, and they can be used to rupture steel plates, pulverize rocks, or even punch a hole through a mountain. The optic blasts constantly emanate from his eyes involuntarily, and can generally only be stopped by his own eyelids, or by shielding his eyes with ruby quartz, a translucent mineral. Cyclops wears ruby quartz as lenses and glasses or in his visor, which is generally the only way for him to safely see without inadvertently damaging his surroundings. The beam's involuntary nature has been explained as a psychological shortcoming that resulted from childhood trauma. Cyclops can nevertheless manipulate the beams in several different ways, partially through the use of adjustable apertures in his eyewear that allow the beam to fire through their shielding at variable levels. In addition to varying the beam width, height, and intensity, Cyclops has demonstrated a high degree of skill and accuracy in manipulating his optic blasts. Cyclops is able to reflect the beam off hard and shiny surfaces. This feat also demonstrates his intuitive sense of spatial geometry between objects. The reflective qualities of the beam allows him to bounce the beam off many different surfaces in rapid succession. It has been observed to be focused tight enough to punch a pinhole through a coin, drill through the trunk of a log, and pierce the skin of the blob. Not an easy feat. Cyclops's force beams were measured by Iron Man to be almost 2 gigawatts. Against other Marvel characters, Cyclops has been able to use his optic beam to knock Thor's hammer from his hand, as well as overload Bishop's energy absorption power. Cyclops has never willingly used more than a small fraction of his full potential due to his anxiety regarding his optic blast power. Early accounts describe Cyclops' optic beams as the product of his body metabolizing sunlight and other ambient energies. This is similar to his brother Alex alias Havoc, who metabolizes cosmic radiation. Chris, I think the biggest takeaway from Cyclops' power is the part you said in the very beginning, which is something I think a lot of people forget because it's just easy to forget when you see him on the paper. But this is not a laser. This is not a energy beam. This is a concussive force beam. It's essentially right. like being punched by like overly powerful steel fists over and over again that never ends, you know, it's like battering the cells. It's not light. It's not a laser. It's not a cauterizing beam. It is pure physical concussive force. It just looks like red light. That's something really interesting about the character and why it makes him so powerful because essentially if you had unstoppable concussive force, you could break through most mass. And that's kind of how his, his eyes work. Well, and the fact that he has knocked Thor's hammer from Thor's hand yes, just really kind of cements him as, he might not be an Omega-level mutant, but he is a very powerful character. Like Wolverine, his power is very conducive to being very useful, even if it's not at an Omega-level threat. Right, which I think is going to be a theme, Chris, with a lot of the non-Omega-level mutants, which is a big theme of... X-Men, I, something I like about X-Men, which we're going to get to coming weeks, is sometimes they only have one power. 
And that power sometimes is really hard to control. But also, sometimes that one power is really powerful in certain situations. It's not like they are a Thor where they have all these different superpowers, you know? They're typically more narrow. You gave the example of Wolverine, which we'll get into later. But I mean, Scott is no different, but Scott is so powerful. He really is. He is, and his power levels over the years has changed. And of course, most most famously is when he, you know, became part of the Phoenix Force in X-Men versus Avengers. That's a big deal, right? Well, and of course, too, with Scott, not necessarily a power, but very similar to Captain America. One of his powers, too, is his leadership and his tactics within the team. You know, he's not just a guy with this concussive force. He's also someone who focuses a lot on tactics. Not just battlefield tactics, either. Right. He focuses big picture. He focuses micro and macro. He's in it to save mutants as a species. He thinks large scale, as well as being a master on the battlefield of just putting his people in the right spot to succeed with whatever task he needs done. Absolutely. And so, Chris, you've already mentioned it, but I'll mention his first year in appearance in comics, which was X-Men number one, September 1963, and he was created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. We're just going to keep saying those names over and over again. Never going to get away from them. We're not. But let's get into Scott's history because I know it's really dynamic, it's really robust, and I know you've trimmed it down a lot, and it's still robust. It's pretty big. When Scott was a boy, his father, U.S. Air Force Major Christopher Summers, took the family for a flight in their de Havilland Mosquito from their grandparents' home in Anchorage, Alaska. The Mosquito came under attack by a Shi'ar interstellar craft. As the plane went down in flames, Scott's parents fastened him and his younger brother Alex into a parachute and pushed them off the plane, hoping they would survive. In Cyclops' first appearance in X-Men number one, he's already leading the X-Men under the tutelage of Professor X. Later, Scott's origin is first presented in Uncanny X-Men numbers 38 through 42, and later refined in Uncanny X-Men number 144, and again in Uncanny X-Men number 156. In 2010, Marvel released X-Men Origins Cyclops number one that describes the character's childhood through his joining the X-Men. The early accounts in the X-Men comics uses flashbacks to tell the origin story of Scott parachuting from his parents' plane. The flashbacks are often told from various narrative perspectives and place different emphasis on the events of this period. Scott's poor control over his power has been attributed to events in his childhood. In Uncanny X-Men 156, Scott's parachute catches fire and Scott is struck on his head upon landing. This caused brain damage to Scott, which is responsible for his poor control over his optic blasts. Several origin stories do not feature the head injury account, with X-Men Origins Cyclops number one being the most recent. The head injury account has also been retconned in Astonishing X-Men Volume 2 as being due to a self-imposed mental block he made as a child to deal with the traumatic events of his life. With the help of Emma Frost, Scott is able to briefly bypass his own mental block and control his powers, though he reveals that his control is waning and temporary. And I include all that because it's so ingrained in us all from watching the X-Men 92 cartoon that Scott's lack of control with his powers is from that head injury, but that has since been retconned, and I just wanted to make you make you all aware of that there. 
For a time, Scott has prolonged amnesia about his childhood. Parts of his memory are returned when he was unexpectedly attacked by the demon Despair. While on a leave of absence after Jean Grey's perceived first death, Scott spent most of his childhood at the state home for the foundlings in Omaha, Nebraska, and was subjected to batteries of tests and experiments by the orphanage's owner, Mr. Milbury, an alias for the geneticist Mr. Sinister, who also placed mental blocks on Scott. And just as another aside, I really hope we get Mr. Sinister in this game. He is super cool. And in a weird way, Chris, he's one of Scott's arch nemesis. Oh, absolutely. He has been manipulating all Summer's family members for quite some time. He's pretty great. When Scott is 16, he goes on a trip to New York with his orphanage supervisor. Scott walks near a construction site and his optic beam activates for the first time. The blast damages a metal crane, causing it to fall forward towards an onlooking crowd. Scott thinks quickly and unleashes a second blast that destroys the crane. The crowd thinks this is an act of violence and forms an angry mob. Scott quickly hops onto a train and runs away. While wandering, Scott encounters Jack O'Diamonds, who tries to recruit Scott as a thief, but eventually Scott battles the villain. He is then found by Professor Charles Xavier, directly after whom erases the crowd's memories. Xavier then asks Scott to join him and his X-Men. Scott gladly accepts as the first official member. In the X-Men's first field mission, he battles Magneto. With the X-Men, he battles the Vanisher, Eunice, the Untouchable, the Blob, and many others. Xavier would soon choose him to be the deputy leader of the team and act as field commander whenever Xavier was absent. Cyclops has a relationship with Jean Grey during their time in the original X-Men. For a long time, he refuses to admit, even to himself, that he has feelings for her. Afraid he would be hurt again, or that his optic blasts would hurt her, or anyone else he cared for, for that matter. And also because he feels he is no match for his wealthy teammate, Warren Worthington III, a.k.a. Angel, who is also first romantically interested in Gene. What Scott doesn't know is that Gene actually has a crush on him, but is too shy to make a first move. Finally, on Bobby Drake's 18th birthday, they reveal their passion for one another and become lovers. During one of the X-Men's adventures, he rediscovers his brother Alex as Alex's powers begin to manifest. Alex would then join the team as Havoc. When the original team of X-Men are defeated by Krakoa, the living island, Cyclops is the only member able to escape and return to Xavier. He helps train a new group of X-Men, which includes Storm, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Banshee, Thunderbird, Sunfire, and Wolverine to rescue the others. What a list. <laughs> what a great <laughs> list. Other than Sunfire, of course. Yeah, of course. When the other original X-Men, Angel Beast, Iceman, Jean Grey, and later editions Havoc and Polaris decide to leave in light of the arrival of the new X-Men, Cyclops stays, feeling that he will never be able to lead a normal life because of the uncontrollable nature of his powers. As an adult member of the X-Men, Cyclops unknowingly meets his father, now known as Corsair, leader of the Star Jammers, a group of aliens opposing what they see as the tyranny of the Shi'ar Empire. Jean learns of Corsair's identity, but keeps it from Scott, and several years pass before he learns his father's true identity. Cyclops privately questions his relationship with Jean after Jean 
dies trying to pilot a space shuttle through a solar flare and is then reborn as Phoenix, feeling that this reborn gene is not the same gene that he loved. Yet when he thinks her dead for an extended period of time after a battle in the Savage Land, Scott is is not able to mourn her and believes this meant he did not really love her anymore. He briefly dates Colleen Wing. However, when Scott and Jean are reunited on Muir Island to fight Proteus, he rediscovers his love for her, and they share a passionate kiss on the way home. A few days before Jean dies, Scott psychically proposes, and she accepts. After her death, he quits the X-Men, unsure of what to do anymore. He signs on as a crew member on a fishing boat, captained by Lee Forrester. After an adventure in which Lee's father is possessed by despair, Cyclops and the Man-Thing must fight the demon. Scott and Lee find themselves shipwrecked in the Bermuda Triangle, where they stumble upon Magneto's new base of operations. Scott soon returns to the X-Men. He then discovers that Corsair is actually his father. Scott originally believed that his parents had died in the plane accident, and was unaware that, that they had, in fact, been captured and sold into slavery by the Shi'ar. His mother was murdered by then-Emperor Deken, leaving a grieving Corsair to escape captivity and form the Starjammers. He also finds out, through Corsair, that he has living grandparents who own a shipping company in Alaska. During his first visit to his grandparents, he meets Madeline Pryor, a woman who bears a strong resemblance to Jean. Eventually, he marries her, and after she gets pregnant, he retires from the X-Men. Scott has a difficult time adjusting to life outside of the X-Men, and later, to his wife's dismay, he challenges Storm to a battle in the danger room for leadership of the X-Men. Despite Storm no longer possessing her mutant powers, she defeats Cyclops. Madeline gives birth to their son, Nathan, and Scott returns to retirement from the X-Men. Shortly after the birth of his son, Jean Grey is discovered and revived by the Avengers and the Fantastic Four. It is revealed that Jean Grey was alive and had never been the Phoenix. The Phoenix is revealed to have been a cosmic entity who placed a dying Jean Grey in a healing pod at the bottom of Jamaica Bay and replaced her, taking on her appearance and memories to the point of not even realizing that Phoenix herself was not the real Jean Grey. After hearing that Jean is alive, Cyclops leaves his wife and son and rejoins the other original X-Men as X-Factor. X-Factor, who pose as mutant hunters, but in reality are trying to help their genetic brethren. Meanwhile, Madeline Pryor goes on to be an assisting member of the X-Men, apparently sacrificing her life during the fall of the mutants with her teammates. The demons Sim and Nastir corrupt Madeline's feelings of despair over Scott's leaving her, transforming her into the Goblin Queen. Madeline seeks revenge on Scott for leaving her. When it is revealed that she is a clone created by geneticist Mr. Sinister, essentially for the purpose of becoming a broodmare, Madeline cannot live with this fact and she regrettably kills herself. Scott seemingly kills Sinister with an optic blast and pursues a romance with Jean, reclaiming his son. Scott soon learns that Mr. Sinister ran the orphanage in which Scott was raised and battled Sinister over this. Shortly after the extinction agenda, Scott re-encounters Apocalypse, who infects his son Nathan with a techno-organic virus. Although Scott rescues his son from Apocalypse with the help of his teammates, he's unable to save his son from the fatal infection. Distraught, Scott sends Nathan 
into the future where he can hopefully be cured. Next, Xavier's psionic enemy, Shadow King, returns to combat the X-Men and X-Factor. After his defeat, Cyclops and X-Factor rejoin the X-Men team, and Scott is named leader of the newly created and extremely interesting for our purposes, Blue Team. Classic. After Cyclops' return as field leader, much of the Blue Team is kidnapped by Omega Red and Ninjas of the Hand. After the captured teammates' rescue, Mr. Sinister sends Caliban, a former X-Factor member, to kidnap Cyclops and Jean for Strife, a madman and rival to Cable, both of whom are time-lost mutants. Strife tells the two that he is Nathan, Scott's son, sent to the future and abandoned. In a fight, Cable and Strife both apparently die. Afterwards, the team battles Omega Red again, and Cable returns to reveal to Cyclops that he is the real Nathan Summers, while Strife is a clone of Nathan, created in the event of his death and raised by Apocalypse. Spoiler alert about Cable. All right. One of the cooler parts about Cable and kind of the cementing that crazy idea which we talked about and where Cable's kind of like the Terminator future trunks of DBZ type character where he's, of course, directly tied to the lineage of the characters that are about to be going through this insane apocalypse, right? And he's the lone survivor, right? Oh, man. Cable's cool. Scott Summers and Jean Grey finally marry. During their honeymoon, they are brought into the future where they raise Cable for the first 12 years of his life during the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix miniseries. After helping Cable defeat the future version of Apocalypse, they are sent back to the past. At the request of Rachel Summers, Jean assumes the Phoenix identity. Mr. Sinister, involved with the machinations of Apocalypse and Strife, tells Cyclops that there is another Summers brother and leaves him wondering. As Cyclops deals with the fact that his son is now old enough to be his father, the X-Men are forced to battle their mentor when Professor Xavier is transformed into the evil Onslaught. As a result of his recent attempt to wipe Magneto's mind, causing Magneto's darker impulses to merge with Xavier's own subconscious darkness and manifest as a new personality. Although the X-Men defeat the evil entity and free Xavier, most of Earth's heroes are lost for a time. Xavier, who is left powerless after Onslaught's defeat, is arrested for his part, leaving Scott and Jean as leaders and co-headmasters of the school. However, the pair go into retirement following Operation Zero Tolerance, in which Cyclops is gravely injured when a bomb is placed in his chest. Scott and Jean return to the X-Men sometime after at the request of Storm, when she grows concerned about the mental well-being of Professor Xavier, who had returned some time prior. Their return then leads to the events of the Twelve, in which Apocalypse plans to use a machine to steal the powers of twelve select mutants and the body of Nate Gray, which will make him virtually omnipotent. In order to save Nate, Cyclops willingly merges with the villain Apocalypse. He is believed dead until Jean and Cable track him down to Egypt and separate him from Apocalypse, killing Apocalypse's spirit in the process. Upon Cyclops' return to the X-Men, following his possession, his personality has been altered as a result of being bonded with Apocalypse. This change causes a rift between him and Jean. He claims that Apocalypse made him question not only their relationship, but his life as a whole. 
He is instrumental in preventing the mutant Zorn's suicide and in recruiting the powerful mutant to the X-Men. The two establish a close friendship. Similarly, repeated missions with Wolverine result in the growth of a tentative friendship between the two veteran X-Men rivals. When Jean begins to show signs of the Phoenix Force again, the distance between the two grows larger. Scott begins abstaining from sex with Jean for five months. Jean attempts several times to confront Cyclops, but he continues to push her away, claiming that Apocalypse has changed him too much on the inside. Jean, confused by the change in their relationship, confides in Logan, and the two kiss in the woods outside of the school, but Logan walks away telling her that she should remain with Scott. Xavier leaves Earth while under the control of Cassandra Nova, and Jean is left as headmistress of the school. Her new responsibilities, along with her growing powers, force Jean to put her attention elsewhere, leaving Scott feeling ignored and his trauma from being possessed trivialized. Instead of attempting to reconcile with Jean, Scott turns to Emma Frost for consolation, feeling that he can talk to Emma about his problems. Their relationship ostensibly begins as a series of psychic therapy sessions, but the two soon engage in a full-fledged psychic affair. When Phoenix discovers the affair, Cyclops claims he and Emma shared only thoughts and thus have done nothing wrong. Meanwhile, Emma's snide and mocking jeers provoke a hurt and angry Jean to physically confront her, using the full power of the Phoenix Force to quote-unquote burn through the lies She forces Emma to admit her true feelings for Scott and to face her many failures, sins, and personal demons. Furious at both himself and Jean, Scott confronts Jean and demands that she read his mind. Jean complies, only to discover that Scott and Emma never engaged in any physical contact, though Emma had offered it. After confronting Jean with the truth, Scott leaves the Xavier Institute And a short time later, Emma is found shattered in her diamond form and believed killed. Scott soon finds himself at the Hellfire Club, which had been turned into a sleazy strip club, and he attempts to get drunk, attempting to escape from his responsibilities, expectations, and demands which he feels are unjustly placed on him by the X-Men. He then accompanies Wolverine and Phantom X to the government-created time pocket called The World, and later Asteroid M. During his time with Wolverine, Scott reveals that he feels his relationship with Jean is stagnant and that the two of them had not progressed romantically since their initial teenage romance. He also confesses that he feels that Jean is so concerned with the school and her new powers that the two no longer communicate like before and that he feels left behind due to Jean once again being connected to the Phoenix Force. When Scott finally returns to the X-Men, their new teammate Zorn, who was revealed to be Magneto, but subsequently was retconned as an imposter. That's a very kind of weird time (laughs) in the comics. So Zorn, Magneto, but not Magneto, attacks the X-Men. Having at last reached full Phoenix power, Jean confronts Zorn, Magneto, not Magneto, and is killed in the process. As she is dying, Scott apologizes for hurting her, but Jean instead tells him that she understands and has never seen him more alive and urges him to live on. Scott, however, is devastated by Jean's death and considers leaving the X-Men once more. It was revealed in the Here Comes Tomorrow storyline that had he done so, it would have led to an apocalyptic alternate future. 
To prevent this, a resurrected future version of Jean uses her powers as the White Phoenix of the Crown and telepathically reaches back in time to tell Cyclops it was okay to move on, leading him to start a real relationship with the not-dead Emma Frost. Together, the pair rebuild the Xavier Institute as co-headmasters. The new relationship between Emma and Scott leads to problems between them and the rest of the X-Men, all of whom believe that the pair are doing Jean's memory a disservice. Rachel Summers in particularly feels hurt and angry by her father's lack of remorse for the psychic affair that had hurt Jean before her death and Emma's part in it, and takes on the last name Gray in place of Summers, one of her many name changes. The other X-Men eventually come to accept the relationship, and both Scott and Emma manage to reconcile with Rachel in their own ways, such as introducing Rachel to Jean's other family members. Deciding that the X-Men need to play more of a role in emergency rescue and aid and thus garner attention on mutants in a more positive light where mutant abilities are used for the good of humans, Cyclops handpicks a new team in astonishing X-Men of himself, Emma, Beast, Kitty Pride and Wolverine, which is subsequently used by Marvel as the chief representation of the X-Men. The team faces an alien named Ord of the Breakworld, who supplies Earth scientist Dr. Kavita Rao with a quote-unquote cure for mutation. The team subdue Ord and rescue the resurrected Colossus, but not before learning that one of their own will be responsible for the destruction of Ord's homeworld in the coming year. Not long after, the X-Men's danger room becomes sentient, attacking the X-Men and seeking to ultimately kill Xavier. Calling itself Danger, she reveals that Xavier knew she had been self-aware since Shi'ar technology was installed in the danger room years ago, but chose to ignore her, effectively inhumanely using her only to train his teams of X-Men. After her defeat on the islands of Genosha, the X-Men abandon Xavier in disgust, with Cyclops no longer welcoming Xavier's input at the school or with the team. Cyclops also tutored a squad at the Institute called the Corsairs, named after Cyclops' father. The team consisted of Dryad, Quill, Spectre, and the three remaining Stepford Cuckoos. In Astonishing X-Men number 14, during an impromptu telepathic quote-unquote therapy session, Emma Frost presented Cyclops with the possibility that his lack of control over his optic blasts actually stems from, not from physical brain damage, but from a sort of mental block that the young Scott imposed on himself after the combined traumas of the loss of his parents, separation from his brother, and shocking manifestation of his powers. This is seen as a coping mechanism giving Scott something to focus on and try to maintain some sort of control over at a time when events completely out of his control had effectively shattered the life he had led up to that point. Scott admits that this therapy is the truth, further admitting that he had blocked making this decision out of his memory to preserve the fallacy in his own mind and prevent others from discovering his secret. The issue ends with Scott apparently in a catatonic state with his eyes uncovered and displaying their natural shade of brown, with no evidence of his powers manifesting. Later, he manifests and has full control over his optic blasts, although it was only temporary. After the events of House of M, nearly all mutants were left depowered, and Xavier was missing. A mysterious villain then attacked and easily defeated several members of the team, including Cyclops and his alternate reality daughter, Rachel. 
The two were captured and taken to an undisclosed location, which Cyclops vaguely remembered visiting in the past. Eventually managing to free themselves, Cyclops and Rachel attempt to escape, only to run into their captor, revealed to be Vulcan, who informs Cyclops that he was the X-Man's younger brother. A powerless Professor Xavier confirmed this information in the final book of the miniseries, this new information has left Cyclops resentful towards his mentor and has gone so far as to demand that Xavier leave the school as it is no longer his. And this will bring us up to the events of Civil War, and that is where we're going to leave off lore for today. Whew. He has a very intense history and a lot of trauma. Yes, he does. And I will say, Chris... I have grown to like Cyclops more over the years. And I think, you know, going over Lord today even helped me do that more because there's a quote in life I've always had. And I think it applies with Scott sometimes. It's just in every situation, someone always has to be the dad. And that's usually Scott, unfortunately. And sometimes it makes him really lame. And other times it makes him really responsible. And that's just kind of his situation. And then you have that paired with his trauma and paired with some of his volatile nature, also paired with his kind of stoic and super wise nature. And you've got a really dynamic character in all seriousness. He is a very interesting, complex, and deep character. I, however, am on Team Wolverine when it comes to X-Men strategy. I am too, as you know. But it's really interesting for them to present all good guys, I say in quotes, and X-Men on the X-Men teams, but then they have to have inner conflicts between these good people, you know, so you have some actually interesting conflict within the teams, not just so much so, well, we're going to fight the villains, you know, and that's something I've always liked about X-Men that some other comics were a little bit lacking, Chris, like, yeah, the Avengers have had their dynamics, their power shifts, their conflicts, case in point, Civil War, but the X-Men have always had that. And I think it's one of the most interesting parts about the X-Men is they've all got these sort of different standards and morals and beliefs. And yeah, they're all good guys. And yeah, they're all led sort of by Xavier, but that's kind of where it stops, right? You got a lot of interesting things going on. I and mean, you got characters like Gambit who are nowhere near the moral compass of Scott and Logan, you know what I mean? But also then you kind of got this like gray area between all of them, you know, and it, it keeps going, right? We got characters like Nightcrawler who are even more moral compass centered, you know, and, and you've got a lot of dynamics going. Well, the X-Men have always been a very dramatic team. It hasn't always been just a superhero book. It's just as much superhero soap opera. Absolutely. Couple that with the wild time, constant time displacement and time travel stories. You know, X-Men continuity is very hard to follow. It's very wild, very complex. That's part of what I like about it. It's one of the wildest for sure. So that makes a lot oh, of sense. It's so wacky sometimes. And I, I think it's, I just think it's fun. Well, we got to talk about Scott today in the Marvel cinema because he's not in the MCU, but he is in the Marvel cinema world. And that, of course, is... And all the X-Men movies. He's in most of them, Chris. He's he's in a good portion of them. We're not going to go through his role in all of them, but we are going to touch on who he was played by and kind of his role in the movies. So, of course, in X-Men, X-2, X-3, and X-Men Origins, and of course, you know, Days of Future Past, the cameo, 
he was played by one man, James Marsden. And James Marsden, I'm very happy he's very successful today. You know, he's in Westworld, which is an incredible job to get, you know, on such a high profile HBO show. And James Marsden is a really, really great guy, like the actor that plays Scott. And I think he was a good pick. I really do think he was a good pick. It's one of my earliest works. I remember seeing him and then I remember seeing him after the X-Men movies in a lot of places. You know, like I said, today he's, you know, on a show like Westworld, a high-profile show like that. But yeah, the guy grew up in Stillwater, Oklahoma, which of course is tied to us in some way, being Oklahoma-raised people. And then of course, I went to Oklahoma State University, which is the town of Stillwater, Oklahoma. So My family lived there for several years, yeah. Exactly. And I lived there for quite some time. So yeah, James Marsden growing up there and going to OSU is a pretty interesting side note. And he's a great guy and Go Pokes. That's right. And I actually like him a lot better than I like the way they portrayed Scott in these movies and the way they had him do it. But, you know, I think it fits these films and I think it fits him and Hugh Jackman's relationship in the films, which is really kind of one of the main focuses of the dynamics between the characters. But then, of course, you had Ty Sheridan, the young actor, come later and play him in Apocalypse, Deadpool 2 as a cameo, and of course, X-Men Dark Phoenix. And that's the young Scott. And that's, uh, you know, young actor Ty Sheridan. He, of course, was the star of Ready Player One. And he also was in the Matthew McConaughey film Mud, which is an excellent film. And yeah, I think he plays Scott fine too. He kind of leans more into that angsty, younger, volatile Scott, which we see a lot with the trauma. And, uh, you know, does a good job with that as well. So it's a character that I think is kind of hard to pull off in the cinematic world in a good way. I'll be honest there, you know, but I do think these two actors did a good job. I'm not going to argue with you. And Chris, we can reassess their performances coming up on our X-Men commentary series very soon, which I'm very excited about because, yeah, we're going to see Marsden and Sheridan playing this character throughout the films. It's going to be interesting. It really is. And, you know, they do a good job in the movies showing Scott's power with his optic blast. They really do a pretty good job of that as well. So, Chris, closing out our lore section, as always, what's your comic book recommendation? Clearly, there's so much you could recommend, but... Too much. What I'm going to recommend right now is something that I just think our listeners will like, and that's Astonishing X-Men by Joss Whedon. Oh, man. There's Joss. There he is again. Yeah. It ties into, you know, the films, but also it's a really good run. It's really fun. It's brutal. It's tragic. It's, It's good. The art's really great, too. Yeah, a lot of people really cite this series a lot, Chris, being one of their favorite X-Men series because Joss's writing was really fresh and new and, and good. And Joss has written a lot of great stuff. He's created a lot of great stuff. And of course, you know, Joss gave us Avengers 1 and 2, which is another crazy facet of his artistic purview. But, you know, it's interesting to go back and see just writing credits like this. You know, it's interesting to hear the names thrown out like that. All right, Chris. Well, I think that's a great lore, but we got to move into strategy because we are covering a new leader. So let's get into it. His name is Cyclops. His alter ego is Scott Summers. On his healthy side, he has six stamina, a medium move, a height of two, and a threat cost of four. His defenses are four physical, three energy, three mystic. And on his injured side, Chris, he is also six stamina with the same stats. So he's 12 health total. What do you think about this four threat cost, Scott Summers? 12 health might be a little low. Not too bad, though. It's not too bad. I just, you know, I'd, I'd rather it be 13, maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm being nitpicky. <laughs> you know, he's he's a leader, so you don't exactly expect to be super wowed. We're, we're kind of 
understanding the uh, parameters that Atomic Mass is, is putting out with these characters now. Yeah. No, he seems good. Four physical is nice, for sure. Well, and four threat, too, is, of course, the most common leader threat cost, right? So that's something we're going to see a lot, and we've seen a lot, right? We've got so many leaders of the four threat cost, so Scott's just another one of those. But let's go ahead and talk about his attacks, Chris. You just start us off with his first attack. His first attack is going to be an energy attack. It is Optic Blast. It's going to be a range four, strength five, Power cost, zero. After this attack is resolved, this character gains power equal to the damage dealt. On wild, you will trigger push. If the target character is size two or less before damage is dealt, it may be pushed away from this character short. I love this, Chris. If you get one wild, you're guaranteed to push him, which is, as we know in MCP, is just absolutely massive. Just pushing people outside of their activation, getting them off objectives is really good. But, you know, a four range five die strike is really nice. That's good. Oh, that range four with that it being five dice is just that's a great builder. It really is because, you know, you're pretty safe. And then ideally, if you're getting wilds off, you're pushing people away. So you're also staying safe. I I love it. His second and last attack is pretty incredible. It's called Optic Devastation. It's a beam five, seven strength, four power cost energy attack. It has a wild trigger, concussive force. After this attack is resolved, the target character loses one power. So Chris, this is pretty crazy. This is the dream. Obviously, you want to line up Scott when he has four power and pull off a beam five, seven dice strength attack that takes away people's power. That's huge, man. If you get a couple characters in line, you know, three or more, you're in a good spot. And beam five is really possible because that's Hawkeye's range. That is an absolutely crazy ability that is going to haunt me. It's expensive. It is expensive. It's very expensive. And I mean, everything, like he's a very power hungry character just in general. And he needs to be because all these are powerful effects. Yes, rightfully so, for sure. But goodness, the the high-end possibility on this optic devastation is just crazy. You know, and just keeping that, Chris, in consideration against, you know, one of the most common characters in the game, the Vision, a four-threat Victor Shade, he has a beam four of five dice. So Scott basically has the super hard-hitting version of the Vision's beam which is pretty interesting. Now, the upsides of the visions is his is his strike, you know, so that's kind of nice. His version of his strike, he gains power off of it. Scott does not gain power, but he does take power from people, which I really like. It's a wonderful illustration of his the concussive blast, too. It's knocking the wind out of people. It's pushing them back. It's relocating them. It, it's cool. Yeah, they're hurting. Yeah. But we've got to get into the importance, Chris, if you read us Scott's affiliation leadership ability of X-Men Blue. Once per turn, when an allied character declares an attack action, but before it chooses an attack to use, any number of allied characters within range 3 of the attacking character may spend 1 power. For each 1 power spent this way, reduce the power cost of the attacking character's attack by 1 to a minimum of 1 for this attack action. I love it. I love it so much. That's so cool. It is harder to pull off than some of the other leaderships in the game. You know, we've got so many that are like, spend a power to reroll a dice, you know, reduce the cost of superpowers, gain power when you deal damage. That's Cabal, right? Wing it, discard a tactics card to get rerolls. Well, Scott's is a little bit more tactical, which I really love. But 
Chris, this is insane because sometimes, you know, in MCP, you have these big attacks, these big attacks that cost four power or more, and you only get them off once or twice a game max. Scott's going to get around that. He's going to get around that in a big way because now when a character's doing their big attack, if allies are around them, they can spend one power each to make the big attack happen. In a way, there's a card in the game called No Matter the Cost, which I run a lot right now in my tactics cards, which is where you can take damage to reduce the cost of a, a big attack, you know, and then you get to perform it. If it's a four power attack, you can take two damage and say you have two power on your character. You can now pay for that four power attack. Scott's a different version of that, which I really like. And if people are positioned right, this is going to work. And Chris, I think this really makes the stock of certain, you know, lower threat characters that don't need to spend power as much go up. Absolutely. And I was thinking about this, this particular affiliation ability. And so far out of all of the affiliations we have in the game, I think this is the one that, that lends itself to building a very specific team around it. Team of a couple of heavy hitter, big power spenders, and then other characters that can build power easily to funnel into those big hitters to basically be an extension of them. It's one of the things I want to try with it. Maybe not all the characters are released yet that will fit into this, but in the future, I could see something like that happening, almost a, a kind of gimmicky team. Well, it's not even that gimmicky because in a way, as you just said, Chris, like in, the more the game goes on, Scott's power is going to get better because if you've got options, you've got ways to do these big attacks, you know, with different characters or big characters come out later that have really pricey attacks. In theory, Scott can help them get those attacks off more in a game. That's pretty interesting. Scott's next power is an active superpower called Field Leader. It costs three power. Choose an ally character within range four. That character advances short. A character can be advanced by the superpower only once per turn. Okay, three power is a lot, Chris, but this is huge. This is like a huge superpower. I think this is amazing. Range four on that is very nice. Yeah, so this is similar to Red Skull's Cosmic Cube Teleport that he uses, but, you know, this is super cool. Advanced short is different than place two. You know, I understand all that. But, I mean, this this kind of showcases Scott's leadership, right? He's guiding people on the battlefield. He's saying, move up, take a cover position, you know, get in this tactical position. We're advancing on the enemy. It, it's really thematic. Very useful, too. It really is. His next superpower is going to be a active superpower. It's called Hit and Run. It is going to have a power cost of two. This character immediately makes an attack action, followed by a move action. This superpower can be used only once per turn. I think we might have seen this a couple times, but it's really great that it's in Scott's kit, especially with Optic Blast having such a good range, having a pretty good dice for a base strike. And if you're sitting on a lot of power, being able to hit and run with an Optic Devastation would be awesome. Yeah, it's huge. Late game, right? Because... You can get away and be fine. Also, the, you know, this is something we first saw on the Green Goblin. It's not as good as charge, you know, because charge is move, then attack. But attack, then move, it's got its uses, Chris. It's really interesting. You're probably not going to use this on Scott quite as much as maybe some of these other superpowers, potentially. But when you use it, as you just said, it's probably going to save his life, you know. He's going to do an attack, get away. Or you could Optic Blast, then Hit and Run, then Optic Devastation then get back behind cover or out of line of sight, you know, which is pretty nice. Very nice. His last superpower looks familiar. It sounds a little bit like our Hawkeye episode. It's a reactive superpower called Quick Draw. It costs 
two power. When this character, Scott, is targeted by an attack and the attacker is not within range two of Scott, Scott may use this superpower. Instead of rolling dice equal to his defense, he rolls five defense dice. Then, if the character suffers no damage from the attack, after the attack is resolved, the attacker suffers two damage. This is not like Hawkeye, even though it sounds like it at first, Chris. This is like Gamora, where she just replaces her defense dice amount with five dice. Scott's the same way. So his defenses immediately went up in a different way from a superpower. And possible unavoidable damage coming in there too. That's scary. It's great. Well, if you're two damage away from being dazed or KO'd and he has power, do you really want to attack him? Do you want to risk that? Right. It's a deterrent. Could be game changing if, you know, the rolls don't go properly. Yeah. I mean, five dice is a lot, you know, and if he takes no damage, he blocks it all. You could be dead because then, yeah, two auto damage is coming through. It's pretty wild, Chris. And we already talked about his injured side. Nothing changes. He still has six stamina. His superpowers are the same. This is Scott. What do you think? He's a very interesting character. I'm excited to get an X team out there. I'm excited to funnel everyone's power into his big, big beam attack. Trying to line up that that dream where you get, you know, half, half the enemy team in the same beam. Right. Yeah, he's he's a very cool character. I'm not sure he's exactly my play style, but I'm excited to try him. He's one of the harder affiliations to use in the game, but I, I when I think it's used, it will be really effective. And you bring him some interesting thoughts with him, Chris, because MCP is a game where you can build any list you want. So when you bring those Modoc, Magneto-type characters into Scott's team with these big attacks... That's interesting, right? Like, are there attacks oh, cheaper? Oh, I absolutely think so. You just pass the Black Widow and the Toads of the board who just have some power. Well, of course, they're going to pass those up to Magneto or, or Modoc or one of these big heavy hitters on Scott's team. I, it just makes sense, right? So I'm really curious to see how this works. I'm really interested to try it, as you can imagine. It seems like something that's up my alley in particular. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to learning it. Storm's leadership seems much easier to use, but Scott's seems much higher skill ceiling and when used correctly can flip a game. So I'm really interested to just kind of see them side by side, strength, weaknesses, all that good stuff. But Scott's fun. I mean, a ranged leader is really cool, Chris. Like Star-Lord's really cool with that. Scott's basically the buffed up version of Star-Lord. You know, we don't have a lot of ranged leaders in the game so far. So I'm interested to see how this plays out. It's going to be interesting for sure. Well, that's Scott. As our X season goes on, we're going to use him as a building block moving forward. So that's about all we're going to talk about on him today. But we are going to build every episode going forward. We're going to talk about him and who could be on his team, how it could work. And the same with Storm going forward. So stay tuned for that. Fury's Finest is supported by our wonderful patrons. You can become a Fury's Finest patron by going to patreon.com slash Fury's Finest. Catch our streams of Marvel Crisis Protocol and hopefully some painting at twitch.tv slash Fury's Finest. Follow the show on Twitter at Fury's Finest Cast and Instagram and Facebook at Fury's Finest. Email us at furiesfinest at gmail.com and leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. If you can't support the show on Patreon, if you follow us on social media on all the pages and you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that's a great way to help us. Please help spread the word about our show. Rate, review, and subscribe. That's right. And make sure to check out our Tee Public page, which is linked in the show notes. Like always, we have X-Men Designs 
up on our T Public page now, alongside our Spider Family new designs, which we're really excited about. We now have X Men designs to celebrate X season and the coming episodes of X Men. So if you enjoyed the art on this episode, it's on the T Public. Also, we have some really cool named list shirts of the different members of the X-Men teams. So check those out and we will continue to add more as X season keeps going. You can find Chris and I on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Jesse Aiken. That's J-S-S-E-E-A-K-I-N. Check out my podcast project Starhawk all about Star Wars squadrons and check out the Canon Cantina, my Star Wars show about Star Wars canon and story. We are currently doing the mandalorian season two how exciting it's an exciting time you can follow me chris on twitter at c-h-r-i-s-b-r-u-f-f-e-t-t thanks for listening true believers excelsior excelsior